Well, if you're new here today, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors, and thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, I'd love for you to fill out the Connect card that's in the back of the seat in front of you and take it to a welcome center before you leave today. Drop it off so we can invite you to a dinner. Uh, I'd love to be able to answer your questions and talk to you about the church and give you a chance to get to know us and who we are at First Free Church and, and where we're going. And if English is not your first language and you'd like to follow along with the message in a different language, you can do that at efree.org slash translate. You can pull that up on your mobile device. That's efree.org slash translate. And you can follow along with the service in over 60 different languages as it transcribes that you can read along if that's more comfortable to you. We're in the middle of the Undivided series. We're in, in week two, and this is something that we're, we're going through again because we think it's really important for us to keep this in the forefront of our minds. We think it's especially important this year for a variety of reasons that I talked about last week. This is something that needs to be a part of our DNA, an undivided mindset. But all of the messages are being redone and reworked. So if, if you're paying really close attention, you'll notice that the core concepts are the change. Those probably shouldn't change. Uh, but the, the way it's presented and all the information is, is kind of all new and all fresh. So if you're paying close attention, you'll be able to see that. A lot of the illustrations are new as well. I want you to think for a moment about the kinds of things that you had disagreements about, arguments about when you were a kid. Go back some of you longer than others, to the time when you were a child and the arguments and the fights you got into, the disagreements you had, what were the types of things that you fought about? Maybe with your siblings or extended family members or other kids at school. Go ahead and tell me, what were the things that you fought over back then? What's that? Me first. Yeah, I want to be first in line for sure. What else? What's that? The front seat in the car, I call shotgun. That's where I want to be, yeah. Except when I was growing up, we did that for a little while, but we also had one of those woody station wagons, and so the back seat turned around, and you could do this to the truckers. Nobody does that anymore. Those poor truckers are so bored now. Everybody's looking at their phones. What else? What do we disagree about as kids? Who got to ride the big wheel? No, I mean, I, I know what you're talking about, but I didn't know that was a fight. So I guess there you go. You got to get one for everybody, I suppose. Who gets to ride the big wheel? What else? What do you fight about when you're kids? What do you disagree about? The phone? Who gets the phone? You got one phone. It's connected to a long cord. <clears throat> if you were really well off, you had one in your bathroom for some reason. <laughs> what else? What do we fight over when we're, when we're kids? What show, to watch? what show to watch on TV? That's right. I heard something else over here. Who has to do the dishes? Yeah, who's got to do all the chores? Let me ask you this, parents out there, okay? You might have kids currently or you, you've, your kids are grown up, whatever it is. Parents, what do your kids fight over right now? Everything. Everything. Good answer. <laughs> what are the big disagreements that they're wrestling over? Anybody? What's that? Fairness. It's not fair. I want that too. Oh, yes. And their perception of fair is like, woof, all over the place. She looked at me. That's right. She touched me. That's where you draw the imaginary line, right? That line of demarcation, the demilitarized zone that they cannot cross. And then the kids start to figure out if they cross that line, that means I can do whatever I want to them. 
Here's something that my kids have fought over recently, and I hesitate to even share about this because it probably makes us sound a lot more spiritual than we are. Um, We're really not this spiritual, but they fight over the order in which they get to pray during prayer time. And so for a while, it was first. You know, it was, I want to be, I want to be first. I want to go first. So they would try to call for dibs on first to pray first. And then somehow it all of a sudden changed when one of them realized, hey, you know what? I'm just going to treat last as the best one. And so now I'm going to call last. And then what do they do? They all call last. I want to be last. I want to be last. And then it morphed into um, something which I never thought of before, the very coveted first last position. Are you... Are you familiar with first last? It basically means second to last. So you're the first of the last ones to pray. I mean, it takes Jesus' commands to a whole new level of last will be first and all that. It's very confusing. It's an inception kind of model of prayer order. And, and my kids will call first last because now that has become the status symbol of choice in our family to be the first last to pray. If you think about it, All of the things that we argued about when we were kids, or even just go back 10 to 15 years, right? No matter how old you are, just go back 10 to 15 years. Think about some of the things that were a really big deal to you back then. I'll bet a lot of them are not a big deal to you now. And you probably look back on those times and think to yourself, how did I ever get so worked up about that? Why was that such a big deal to me? And yet it seems so insignificant now. So I want to illustrate this in a certain way, kind of what's going on here, the the phenomenon that we experience like this. And I want to do it very physically. So I'm going to ask you to trust me and do something with me. I want you to close one eye. Would you do that? Just close one eye. I know it's weird, but close one eye. And then I want you to hold out your arm and make a fist, okay? Now, nobody take a picture and put this on social media with some weird caption, okay? That's not what this is about. Just stick with me. Stick with me. I want you to think about what you can see right now. One eye is closed. Fist is in front of you all the way out. What do you see right now? Well, you probably see the stage. You see me. You see the musical instruments behind me, the graphics on the screen, the cross up there, right? Now, I want you to do something. I want you to move your fist so that it's about an inch away from your eye. Not too fast. Just about an inch away from your eye. Okay, now what do you see? Not nearly as much, right? You see a big fist. That's what you see. Now, what got bigger? Nothing. You can put your fist down. Nothing got bigger. The size of your fist did not change. Your perspective of your fist changed. And that is a really important, if simple, truth. Only two things actually changed here. First of all, how close you were to your fist changed. And secondly, how much of your vision was blocked by your fist. Now, I'm going to change that word fist to disagreement. This is what happens to us when we lose perspective on the disagreements and the fights that we have with other people. How close you are to your disagreement and how much of your vision is blocked by your disagreement is what makes it such a big deal to us most of the time. Some disagreements are a big deal, don't get me wrong, but most of the time it seems like they are much bigger than they really are because of how close we are to it and how much of our vision they are blocking. Disagreements often seem like a big deal when they're up close to us. So what do we need to learn to do? We need to learn to take a step back, to reframe our disagreement with other people in in light of a bigger picture, 
to see them at their actual size. It's all about perspective. Perspective is the difference between seeing a huge insurmountable boulder and a tiny little stone. The difference can be how close it is to you and how much of your vision it is blocking. Now, last week we talked about the four buckets of belief. And the buckets of belief help us to put our beliefs in the right perspective. They give us that step back, big picture view of where our beliefs fit in these priorities. But what we didn't talk about last week was how the buckets each relate to each other. The buckets actually fit inside of each other like this. And there are two things I want you to notice about this. First of all, the size of the bucket should tell you something about how many things are supposed to go in there. So a smaller bucket, like the dogma bucket, for instance, in the middle, is going to have a much smaller amount of things in there. And once you get to the doctrine bucket, there's a bigger list. And with the convictions, there's an even bigger list. And then when you get to the preference bucket, there's a massive list of things that we put in there. But that tells you something about how much really belongs in there. The second thing I want to point out to you is that the smaller buckets are actually included in the bigger buckets. So our convictions are within our preferences. Our our, our convictions, we prefer to follow them, or at least we should. Our doctrine is within our convictions and our preferences. We prefer and are convicted about our doctrines. Uh, But they're at a little higher level than our convictions. The same thing is true of our dogma. Our dogma is a part of our doctrine. So I want to be clear on this. It's not like they're completely separate, isolated buckets. You really have to think of them as different sizes, one within each other, where your dogma, that core, that middle part that we talked about last week, and we're going to explain it more today, is a part of your doctrine. But the reality is that on some of our doctrinal beliefs, if you disagree with us, we're going to say, we think you're wrong, but you're still a follower of Jesus. But then there are some of our doctrinal beliefs where we're going to say, actually, that's essential enough and core enough that if we disagree on that one, you're probably not a real follower of Jesus. You haven't actually trusted in him. You're not a true, genuine believer, as far as we can tell. And so we need that dogma bucket. It's a part of our doctrine. Don't get me wrong but it is a higher level. We need a fourth bucket to be able to put that in. Now, if that doesn't all fully make sense to you, it may mean that you weren't here last week and so you need some context and you need to go back and watch the message from last week and it'll, it'll start to piece together for you. And then also the rest of this message is probably going to help all of that make an awful lot more sense. So we're going to talk about the dogma bucket today. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive into what do we call dogma and why do we call it that. Let me start by just explaining why I use the word dogma for this bucket. The dictionary defines dogma as a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. And if you're not sure what incontrovertibly means, don't feel bad. I had to look it up as well. It means in an obvious and provable manner. So that is a definition for the word dogma. A principle or set of principles, that's your bucket, laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly obvious and provable true. So what then would we say is our authority? For us, that is the Bible. That is God's word. We view that as an authority in our lives. If, if the culture around us were to tell us unanimously, you need to do this thing, and the Bible were to tell us, absolutely not, you should not do this thing, we would follow the Bible 100% of the time. That's because the Bible is our authority. 
We follow 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So if the Bible is our authority, then what we need to do to figure out our dogma is learn what is incontrovertibly true, what is obvious and provable, what is so clear and fundamental and core and essential to our faith that the Bible lays out for us as a set of principles. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. What goes in the dogma bucket? We're going to define the dogma bucket this way. Beliefs established by the Bible, that's our authority, as incontrovertibly true, obvious and provable, and essential to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's just how we're going to define it. The core of what we believe. Now let me just say, if you are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're watching online right now, and you are not currently a follower of Jesus, this is a great week to be here. Because if you have wanted to know what does it really mean to be a Christian? Like, what is the essential element there? I just want to cut through the noise and the politics and what I see on TV and just tell me what's the core of what it really means to be a Christian with with all these differences that I see out there. This is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus without all of the extra stuff that goes in the other buckets. And if you are a follower of Jesus... It may be tempting to think of this as just a refresher course. Like, yep, I heard that a long time ago, believed it, now I'm a Christian, I'm good. Got my fire insurance, I am good to go. I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently about this as we walk through the core of what we believe today. I want to challenge you to think about three questions. Ask yourself these three questions. The first one is, can I communicate this message to other people in my own words? How comfortable am I communicating this message, which I say is the core of what I believe, to other people in my own words? Second question, when is the last time I shared this message to someone that needed to hear it? When is the last time I actually shared this message, which again, I say is this important core thing that I believe in with other people that needed to hear it? And the third question is, how do these beliefs impact my life every day? Because it's really tempting to think of this as the entrance exam to Christianity and then forget that we ever walked through it. And the reality is what we are going to talk about today, these core essential truths to being a follower of Jesus, impact our life in immeasurable ways every single day. And we need to be um, cognizant of that. We need to be aware of that. And we need to live in that truth and that reality and rest in that. So there are all these ways that this is going to impact us. Now, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to to follow along with Paul talking about some things. You can follow along if you want on the screens or in your Bible or at efree.org slash Bible or using the YouVersion Bible app. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we are going to do a a wide sweeping survey of Scripture this morning. There are going to be a lot of verses we're going to talk about and cover uh, because our goal is to kind of get a, a broad, big picture view of what does it look like, what God says is most important in that dogma bucket for us. And so if you want to follow along with any of these later and research them more in depth, all of the verses are going to be listed at efree.org slash Bible or in the YouVersion Bible app. All of those verses are there in order for you. Let's start in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, 
and you still stand firm in it. Now, this is really important. He's saying, let me remind you. That's really, really critical to understand why did they need to be reminded? In the first 14 chapters of this letter, Paul is talking to them about a number of different divisions and arguments that they were experiencing. In the first four chapters, it was all about fighting over different leaders. I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Paul, or I follow only Christ. And so they argued about different leaders. In chapter six, it was arguing over legal disputes. In chapters eight through 10, it was arguing over food offered to idols. In chapter 11, it was fights over the Lord's Supper. In chapters 12 through 14, it was arguing about spiritual gifts. So here we are in chapter 15, and Paul is saying, after all of that, I want to remind you about something else. He's given his information about the first 14 chapters, all these different problems. Now I want to call your attention to something that you already know, but you're kind of forgetting about it. It's the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. This is so critical. Most important. Think about the context of what Paul was addressing here. All those disagreements that I just walked through in the first 14 chapters, and he gets to chapter 15, and he says, I want to remind you of what's most important. It's more important than all of those other things. Church leadership is important, but this is most important. Resolving your legal disputes is important, but this is most important. Figuring out what food is okay to eat, that's important, but this is most important. Figuring out how to behave during the Lord's Supper is important, but this is most important. Understanding spiritual gifts is important, but this is most important. And here it is. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. That's it. That's the most important thing beyond everything else that he's been talking about, what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul wants them to reframe all of their arguments and disagreements in light of this core truth. Say the same thing about this. Live in harmony because of this. Be united because of this. Now, last week we were in 1 Corinthians 1. And Paul said this, for Christ didn't send me to baptize. Not that baptism's a bad thing, not that it's unimportant, but that's not my priority with you at first. But to preach the good news, that's what matters more. And not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are saved know it is the very power of God. The message of the cross is the very power of God. No matter what you, what else you leave here with today, I hope that you will have an understanding that believing in Jesus and the message of the cross is the most important thing. Regardless of our other divisions and disagreements and different opinions and convictions and preferences, the message of the cross, the gospel, gospel means good news and it is good news. Now Paul only gives a summary version to the Corinthians. And why is that? It's because it was just a reminder to them. And he literally says, let me remind you of this, which I already delivered to you. I already gave this. You know this. You know this in detail. I want to call your attention to it because it's more important. He doesn't give the details because they need a reminder, not the details. But I want us to dig in a little bit. 
I want us to get into the details a little bit and talk about what this good news really is. What is it? Why do we need it? And what impact does it have on our lives today? Now, the gospel, the good news, and all of its workings are so complicated that the greatest minds in history could spend their entire lifetime studying it and not mind the depths of everything there is to to research there. And yet at the same time, the core of the message is so simple and clear that a child, four or five years old, can hear it and understand and, and put their faith in it and trust in it. And so I'm not going to go to either extreme today. I'm not going to do an extremely simple version, but I'm not going to do the, the big time academic theological study either. We don't have time for that. What I want to do is walk through kind of the middle of the road and say, what is the gospel really? What is the good news? How do we understand this and remember it and retain this information? And one of the important ways I think of remembering things is to have some kind of a visual, some kind of an illustration. I did this for myself many years ago, just created a visual that I thought would help me to remember the core aspects of the gospel. I'm not talking about a method for sharing it. There are all sorts of different methods for presenting the gospel message to people. I'm talking about understanding what it really is. What is the gospel? And so I came up with this idea that maybe we can think of the gospel message like the six pillars of a building. And I just want to walk through these with you and hopefully this visual will help you to remember the six kind of key elements of the gospel. The first one is about God. God created the universe, the earth, and people. And it was all very good. The people were very good. In Genesis 1, we read God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that. I believe that God created the universe and the earth and everything in it. And he created people. He created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. Very good. Nothing was bad, nothing was wrong, there was no sin. God created it all perfect. The second pillar is people. The first people chose to disobey God and they brought sin to all their descendants. They were created perfect without sin, but they were given the opportunity to reject God. We talked last year in one of our series about how if you don't have the opportunity to reject, you can't really love and trust. And so God gave them the opportunity to reject him, and they did. They rebelled against him, thinking that they could become like him instead of trusting him uh, and his direction in their lives. God created boundaries for them, and a boundary without a consequence isn't really a boundary. If there isn't something that happens to you after you cross a boundary, you didn't really have a boundary. And so God created consequences for them, and the consequence that God established for crossing his boundary and rebelling against him was death, both a physical death and a spiritual death. And we learn about that in Romans chapter five. Paul says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Now here's the thing you have to understand. Adam here represents the entire human family. Adam is the head, the representative head of the whole human family. And back then it wasn't a very big family, just two people. And as the representative of the family, he brought the family into sin. And so that's why sin passes on to everyone because Adam, as our representative, brought us all into sinfulness. We're all part of one big, messed up, broken family. Thanks to our ancestors. They were created perfect. They messed it up. 
And that's why there's so much pain and turmoil and brokenness and disease in this world. We experience it both physically and spiritually. That's why we all have this sense, whether you're a Christian or not, that things are kind of messed up and they aren't supposed to be this way. Like it's not, it doesn't feel like it's supposed to be this way. It's just not right. It isn't. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not how God originally created it. And so we are no longer born as perfect people with perfect parents. We're born as sinful people with sinful parents. And God says, hey, I made you. I know what's best for you. I know the best way to live your life. If you will follow my instruction and my direction, things are going to work out great for you. And we are constantly saying, no, God, I want to do what I want to do with my life. Forget about those consequences in the future. I want to do this right now. And then we live with the consequences of our actions. You know, I didn't have to teach my kids how to be rebellious. Did any of you have to teach your kids, like, here's how you sin? No. They learn to do that on their own. They, they, they come out wired that way. They come out with a sinful nature, ready to start rebelling and rejecting and wanting to do their own thing, and they've got their own kind of sinfulness and pride and ego. One of my kids uh, would tell me, I think this was like around almost three years old, something like that, um, I know I shouldn't do this, but my brain keeps telling me to. The brain became the scapegoat for a lot of things for several months. Yeah, I didn't want to do that, Dad. I didn't want to do that. My brain made me do it. I heard that so often. And then eventually it became two brains. Well, one of my brains thinks I should do this, and the other brain thinks... Sounds familiar, right? Isn't that something we all struggle with? We are all effectively slaves to sin. That's exactly what Jesus said. In in John 8, he said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We wrestle with this. Even the Apostle Paul wrestled with this. He said, the things I don't want to do, I do anyway. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. And I, I struggle with this. We all struggle with sin. And that's the third pillar. The third pillar is sin. Every person is a slave to sin, which separates us from God and requires a just penalty. Remember, a boundary without a consequence isn't a real boundary. The consequences for our sin are severe and they go beyond this lifetime. Romans 6 says the wages of sin or the payment for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now our bodies are mortal and our bodies can can cease to be a living person, but our souls don't have an expiration date. Our soul continues on forever and ever. And so death looks different for our soul than it does for our body. When when our soul is separated from God, it's separated from the source of life, the creator of life. And so spiritual death looks like being separated from God forever. It's eternal punishment in a place that we call hell. That's spiritual death. Not that the soul ceases to exist, but that it is separated from the source of life. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 25. He said, and they will go away into eternal punishment. That's what he's talking about. They will go away into eternal punishment because the soul does not die. The soul continues on. But the righteous will go into eternal life. So now the right question to ask at this point is how do I make sure I'm in category two? I do not want to be in category one, eternal punishment. If any of this is true, I don't want to be in that category. How do I get into category two? And here is the problem right here, this one word, righteous. The righteous will go into eternal life. Now here's why that's a problem. 
As the scriptures say, this is Romans 3, no one is righteous, not even one. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. We don't make the cut. None of us makes the cut. And God doesn't grade on the curve. It's not like you can say, well, I was pretty good and I was way better than that guy, so he should probably go to eternal punishment. I'm gonna get the eternal life thing. That's not how it works. The standard is pure righteousness. The standard is never doing or thinking anything wrong ever in your life. None of us make the cut. We all fall short of God's standard. So, if it's true that only the righteous can inherit eternal life and everybody else goes to the other place, how do I become righteous? How do I get that? How does that work? And the answer to that is only through Jesus. And that's the fourth pillar. Jesus Christ is the fourth pillar. It's through Jesus and what he did on the cross. Jesus died to pay our penalty and give us his righteousness. In Romans, again, Romans chapter five, Paul says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ, that's Jesus, another name for Jesus, to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight, we have been made right, made righteous in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. What is he saying there? You can't become righteous on your own, but Jesus can do it for you. Jesus can make you right. Notice it's not we have become right, we have been made right. We are made right by him in God's sight. Not that we're actually suddenly perfect people, but God sees us as perfect because he's looking at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through what Jesus did on the cross that we can be made righteous so that we can be saved from God's condemnation. Jesus came to earth from heaven as God, took on a human body, took on flesh, died and paid the penalty of a human, but as an infinite God and paid an infinite penalty so that we, not just him, not just his apostles around him, not just a few people, but we who believe could be saved through him. Now, Jesus is the only human who never inherited any sin, and he never sinned. The Bible says he was tempted in every way like we are, but he did not sin, and he died so that he could represent the human family instead of Adam. See, Adam was the first representative head of the human family. He took us all into sin. Jesus, the Bible says, is the new Adam. And so he is now the new representative head of the human race or those at least who will come in under his family and say, that's the family I wanna be a part of. I wanna be a part of the Jesus family because he is able to make me righteous. But imagine for a moment Being one of Jesus' first followers at the cross, this person that you have come to believe in is the Messiah God, here to rescue, here to save, here to redeem, here to do all these wonderful things, and there he is upon a cross. How hopeless does that feel? It calls into question everything you've come to believe. What does this mean for the future? What does this mean? I mean, I know he said he would have to die, but I didn't think he meant it this way. What do we do now? And that's why the fifth pillar is so important, and it's life. Jesus came back to life after conquering sin and death. Let me show you this in Romans chapter six. It says, we are sure of this. We are sure, we are confident of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. 
Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. That is so important that Jesus died and broke the power of sin, not just for himself, but for us as well, that he could apply that to us. And that's the last pillar. The sixth and final pillar is reconciled. We can be reconciled to God and free from sin because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. If you go to the very next verse in Romans 6, we'll see this. But now that he lives, Jesus died, but now that he rose again, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Jesus not only paid the penalty for your sin, but he also paid for the consequences after that. He conquered them. He overcame them. He defeated. He broke the power of sin and death. And that is a big deal for us. Jesus didn't just pay for your sin. He overcame the penalty for your sin. Overcame it. Broke its power. Death no longer has any power over him. And it doesn't need to over you either. Most people fear death. For a follower of Jesus, we may be tempted to. But there's actually no reason for us to fear death because it doesn't have any power over us anymore. We know that dying physically here does not mean we're gonna die spiritually and be separated from God forever. Let me show you in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, so we are always confident. We are confident, we are hopeful. Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. Whenever a follower of Jesus dies, the funeral should look less like a memorial and more like a graduation celebration. That should be what's going through our minds. Yes, there is sadness for the people who are still here and miss them and love them and wish they were here with us. But do you really think they'd ever want to come back? If they are home with the Lord, if they are with Jesus in eternity, why on earth would they ever want to come back to see us? And so it's a celebration and understanding that death has no power over them. The power of it is broken by Jesus. And so they are with him. And so when a follower of Jesus dies, it can actually be a wonderful thing. And something to, in in some way, celebrate, even as we are sad and we mourn and we grieve. These are the six pillars of the gospel. It's how I remember the main points. And I encourage you to memorize them as well. God, people, sin, Jesus, life, reconciled. But the picture isn't quite complete yet. There are two more things we need to talk about. This is important, but how does this get applied What is the path? What is the way? What is the way in which that gets applied to us where we can actually be reconciled? And the answer to that is by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In Romans chapter three, Paul says, but now God has shown us 
a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. In other words, this is not something you have to work to achieve. This is not something where you can do things and earn this. The way to be made righteous, to be made right with God, has nothing to do with the things that you do. It was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Here it is. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That means it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. That means if you're sitting there and thinking, with the stuff I've done, there's no way God would ever forgive me. The Bible says that's not true. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. There is one way to be made right with God. It's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the works of the law. And in case that's not clear enough, let me take you to another passage. There are several, but there's another passage that talks about the fact that this has nothing to do with the good things that we can do. It's in Ephesians 2. Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Here's the thing. You do not do good works to be made right with God and become a new creation. When you become a new creation and you believe in God, then you are enabled to do good works. God has created us anew to do good works, but it's not good works that turn us into a new creation. And that is so critically important. We talked about this a few weeks ago as a part of the First Timothy series, which we're gonna go back to in a few weeks. How when you take belief in Jesus and you add anything to that, you are no longer really trusting in Jesus. And in Paul's view, that's like blasphemy. Because what it is saying in effect is this, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough. What Jesus did on the cross was not enough for God to actually view me as right and righteous. And so I need to take some belief in that, but then I'm gonna add some more things that I'm gonna bring to the table so that God will be sure to to say, yes, you were good enough. Yes, you believed in Jesus and you did these good things and so that's good enough. And Paul would say to us, that is not at all how any of this works. It is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation and then you should do good works because you've believed in Jesus and you're a new creation. We are created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are not doing good works so that we can be created anew. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that is what goes into our dogma bucket. Those are the most important things. The clear and obvious, incontrovertibly true things that are set forth by our authority, the Bible as what we are to believe in at our core. And Paul says, I want to remind you of this. I want you to remember this message that I gave to you and you believed it. And even though I just spent 14 chapters talking about your disagreements, I want to remind you this is what matters more. Don't divide over all of those other things. You can talk about them, yes. You can have different opinions about them, yes. He acknowledges all of that. But remember what unites you. Remember what you live in harmony over. It's this gospel message, the good news about what Jesus did on the cross. That's the most important thing. Now we've been talking about disagreements a little bit in this series. And I have to acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of disagreements among Christians about how this stuff works behind the scenes. Does God determine ahead of time who will believe in him 
and become a follower of Jesus? Does God regenerate and then faith comes? Or does faith come and then God regenerates? There are all sorts of other questions, theological questions and nuances about how this stuff works behind the scenes. And what I want to suggest to you is that those things, those questions do not belong in the dogma bucket. Some people get confused and treat the nuances of how this plays out behind the scenes that we do not fully know as if that also goes in the dogma bucket. And I would suggest to you that most of those things actually belong in the conviction bucket. When we get to heaven, I believe God is going to open our eyes and we are finally going to see how things really work behind the scenes. It's like he's going to pull back the curtain and say, ta-da, It's kind of what Jesus did when he showed up, right? And he walked through all the Old Testament scriptures and he revealed to people some things we don't even know. Like on the road to Emmaus, he explained how all this stuff in the Old Testament pointed to him in ways that nobody understood. Now, do you really think that that's not gonna happen with us? That we're gonna get there and God's gonna pull back that curtain and we're gonna see all of these things about how he was working behind the scenes and that every single one of us is going to go, wow, I was off in some areas. I didn't understand, man, that connects over here and that goes over there and this really means this? Whoo, I guess I shouldn't have thought about that so much. I honestly believe that's gonna happen. I really do. I don't think there's a single person on earth who's ever lived who's gonna get there and God's gonna be like, you nailed it. 100%. Wow, I'm impressed. No, it's probably going to be like, hey, you got 55% right. Good for you. That's above average. You know, I really believe that's true. And so if that's the case, then we need to have humility about this. The Bible says God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Why would we think that we can fully figure all this stuff out? And that's why the buckets can be so critically important to us to learn, hey, this goes in the dogma bucket, but there's a lot of stuff related to that that probably shouldn't go in the dogma bucket or even in the doctrine bucket. What we can know for certain is that Jesus made an incredible sacrifice for us, one that's really hard for us to fully understand. But he is the difference in our lives. He's the difference between hope and hopelessness. He's the difference between guilt and grace. He's the difference between emptiness and fulfillment in life. Jesus is the difference. And we, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are supposed to be ready to share about that difference with other people who ask us, hey, how do you have so much hope? How can you have so much hope with what you're experiencing in your life right now? And the Bible says we are supposed to be ready to explain that. And that probably does not look like sharing some of our convictions and preferences it probably looks like this right here. Lots of different ways to share it, but that's the core message, the dogma, the gospel, what we believe. And my concern is that oftentimes for those of us that have been followers of Jesus for a long time, like I have, we tend to treat this very casually. We forget how it should make us feel because it happened a long time ago, because it seems so distant, you know, it was like 2,000 years ago that this stuff actually happened and we, we lose the, the, the emotion and the spiritual weight of what this should mean to us every single day of our lives. How should we react to God saving us like this? I mean, I just went through it in a, in a fairly academic sort of way. But now I wanna share a story with you. A story that I hope will sort of drive home how I think the gospel message, the good news about Jesus should make us feel and put things into perspective for us. I want you to imagine with me 
that there's a village a couple hundred years ago and they're going through a food shortage. And because of this food shortage, it's not like a severe famine, but they have rice, they have beans, they, not a lot of people have meat or corn or some of the nicer foods, right? And so there start to be fights that break out because of this. And the people are up in arms about this. They come to the leader of the village and they say, you've got to do something about this. We cannot keep having these fights. People are getting hurt. We've got to do something. So the village leader comes up with a great plan. He issues one of the strictest punishments that this village has ever seen. If you are caught stealing food, the punishment is a hundred lashes with a whip. Now, if you know anything about those types of punishments back in the day, that could be a death sentence. At the very least, it's, it's scars all over your body for the rest of your life. It is a huge punishment. And for a few days, nobody steals anything. And he thinks, this is great. It worked. My punishment worked. Everybody is scared. They're not going to do it. Awesome. Until one day somebody gets caught. And they get caught and a group of people are making a bunch of noise about it and yelling about it and bringing this person to the village leader's home. So he hears the commotion outside. He knows somebody must have been caught. And so he grabs the whip and he goes outside to give it to the person that's going to issue the punishment. And to his horror, he sees that the person who was caught stealing was his daughter who had run away a few weeks ago. And now she was caught stealing some corn off of somebody's window and she is there before him to be punished. What does he do? If he does not follow through on his own law, then his rule means nothing. And it's time for an uprising. And he'll be replaced and there'll be more killing and more fighting and a power struggle. And how does he make sure that justice is served? And yet here's his little girl who he sees before him is frail and weak. And he knows this punishment will probably kill her. So he hands the whip to the one who's going to issue the punishment. And right before he starts to throw the whip the village leader steps in front of his little girl, stretches out his arms to cover her, and he takes the full punishment. How does this little girl feel in that moment? How does she feel about the father who she rejected now taking her punishment? Do you think their relationship changes at this point? Do you think it changes forever? Her father now has scars all over his body because he took the penalty for her so she could live. She didn't deserve it. There was nothing she did to earn his favor or his love or his rescue. It was only because of his love that he stepped in and paid the price for her. This story, it's just a story, always gets me worked up. And here's why. It's the best way I know to try to feel what this describes. Because Jesus did this for us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet he stepped in front of the punishment for us, stretched his arms out and said, I will take it all for them so they don't have to feel 
any of it. Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Should that put into perspective the disagreements we have with other people? Should that overshadow, that grace that's been given to us, overshadow any of the petty little issues that we find we have with other people? I think it should. I think every day of our lives should be lived in response to that truth. I think every day we should remember, just as that little girl would remember every day, every time she saw her father and saw the scars on his arms peeking out from under the sleeves, she remembers what he did for her. Do we have that kind of respect and reverence and awe for our heavenly father who did that for us? That should change things. That should change the way we treat each other. That should change the way we think about God. That should change how frustrated we get with him when something doesn't go our way that day. Because whatever is happening is nothing compared to what he went through and did for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, hold on to that feeling. Hold on to that truth. Remember it every day this week and from now on. If you are not a follower of Jesus, some light bulbs may have gone off this morning for you, or turned on rather, where suddenly you're realizing how this works and that it's not about the works and all that other stuff. And if you want more information about that, we're gonna have a prayer team down front here after we sing a closing song. And we would love to talk with you more about Jesus and how you can know him and be reconciled to God through him and redeemed and have that payment applied to you. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Lord, you didn't have to, but you rescued us. You saved us. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it is unfathomable to me right now that we would be so selfish and self-centered to not live every day reflecting on the truth of what you have done for us and remembering the difference that that makes in our lives and putting everything else in perspective let the dogma, let the gospel, the good news about what you did for us be in our hearts and on our minds every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.